1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Hamas-Israel war continues to be marked by hacktivism, arid vipers exploitation of arabic speakers android devices iran shows improved cyber espionage capabilities a url shortener in the c2c market taking down the mosey botnet ransomware and health care two russians are arrested on treason charges accused of hacking for ukraine in our industry voices segment Anna Bellick, director of the Office of Cybersecurity Strategy at Sysdig, shares a new threat framework for the cloud. Rick Howard previews his new online course on cybersecurity-first principles. And no, Russia hasn't really replaced its currency with Arctic Ocean gastropods. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. We begin with a look at some of the cyber activity surrounding the war between Hamas and Israel. Activists on both sides continue nuisance-level engagement with targets in Israel and Gaza. C4ISR.net writes, Such attacks are relatively unsophisticated and have little consequence on national security operations, experts said. While a vandalized website can disconcert the public, it likely does not sidetrack military operations. The outlines of the cyber phases of the current war remain unclear— but IT Online has a useful table of known hacktivist groups on both sides, with their allegiance and specialties listed. They're geographically widely scattered. A few of them, like Anonymous Sudan, which is a Russian front group, are state-run. But so far, this war is unusual for the prominence of true hacktivists. Cisco Talos yesterday published a report on recent activity by Arid Viper, the espionage group based in Gaza and generally held to be affiliated with Hamas. The campaign socially engineers its targets to install malicious software, masquerading as an update for the otherwise legitimate dating app, Skipped. There's enough overlap in code with Skipped to suggest, according to Talos, that the arid Viper operators are either linked to Skip's developer or somehow gained illicit access to the shared projects database. Once installed, the spyware disables security notifications, collects and exfiltrates a wide range of sensitive information, and establishes a backdoor for installation of other malware on the device. Despite Arid Vipers' association with Hamas, Cisco Talos is agnostic as to whether the cyber espionage campaign is related to the current war with Israel. The operation seems to precede last month's Hamas attack by some months, The researchers say it was active during 2022. A sponsor and ally of Hamas, Iran, has shown a recent increase in its cyber espionage capabilities. The New York Times reports that Tehran has mounted ongoing cyber espionage campaigns against regional rivals, especially Israel, but also Saudi Arabia and Jordan. The campaign's primary goal, according to Checkpoint Research, the Times cites, appears to be espionage, with the secondary purpose of battle space preparation for possible future disabling cyber attacks. The FBI is on alert for increased Iranian cyber espionage, according to the record. Infoblox describes Prolific Puma, a threat actor that provides a URL shortening service to cyber criminals. Infoblox says they create domain names with an RDGA and use these domains to provide a link-shortening service to other malicious actors, helping them evade detection while they distribute phishing, scams, and malware. The researchers note, Prolific Puma has registered thousands of domains in the U.S. TLD since May 2023. This is remarkable because according to the U.S. TLD Nexus Requirements Policy, only U.S. citizens or U.S. affiliated businesses are eligible to register domains in it. Moreover, the USTLD requires transparency. No domain names may be registered privately. As a result, the email address, name, street address, and phone number associated with a domain are publicly available. While this might seem a likely deterrent to crime, it has not been effective. The USTLD is well known for abuse. Why do the crooks like shortened URLs? It makes it a little tougher for alert users to see where that link is actually going to carry them. ESET has published an analysis of the August 2023 disruption of the MOSI botnet, noting that the botnet contained a kill switch that was targeted by an unknown operator. ESET says, We spotted the control payload configuration file inside a user datagram protocol message that was missing the typical encapsulation of BitTorrent's distributed sloppy hash table protocol. The person behind the takedown sent the control payload eight times, each time instructing the bot to download and install an update of itself via HTTP. Researchers add that the kill switch was likely added by Mosey's developers themselves, stating, This leads us to the hypothesis suggesting two potential originators of this takedown, the Mosey botnet creators or Chinese law enforcement forcing the cooperation of the creators. The sequential targeting of bots in India and then China suggests that the takedown was carried out deliberately, with one country targeted first and the other a week later. Sophos has published a report looking at ransomware in the healthcare industry, finding that attackers succeeded in encrypting data in nearly three-quarters of attacks. Sophos says this is the highest rate of encryption in the past three years, and a significant increase from the 61% of healthcare organizations that reported having their data encrypted last year. In 37% of successful attacks, the criminals also stole data. Compromised credentials were the most common root cause of ransomware attacks in the sector. The researchers also found that healthcare organizations are now taking longer to recover, with 47% recovering in a week compared to 54% last year. Additionally, the report notes, The number of healthcare organizations surveyed that paid ransom payments declined from 61% last year to 42% this year. This is lower than the cross-sector average of 46%. Two men in Russia have been arrested on charges of treason in connection with hacking incidents. They're accused of participating in cyber attacks against Russian targets. Both men were computer scientists and both were arrested in Siberia. The FSB, which has them in custody, hasn't said whether the two men's activities were related. Both are charged under Article 275 of the Criminal Code of the Russian Federation, that is, with high treason in the form of providing assistance to a foreign state or foreign organization, and face sentences upon conviction of 20 years to life. Commerçant reports that the FSB says both men were working under the direction of Ukrainian intelligence services. The record reports that Ukrainian hacktivist auxiliaries associated with dump forums and the Ukrainian Cyber Alliance defaced the website of NSPK, the Russian government-operated pay card system. They also claim to have taken some 30 gigabytes of data from the system and have posted a screenshot of a folder as evidence of their success. That, of course, is far from a conclusive proof of hack. NSPK confirmed to TAS that its website has been defaced, but denied that any data had been compromised. The bank says that the mere payment system itself was uncompromised. All user data, says NSPK, are safe. The defaced website was run by a third-party contractor, and therefore the attackers had no ability to pivot into sensitive data. Maybe but third-party responsibility is no more proof of security than a screenshot of a folder is proof of hack. Mir, whose name has the double meaning of world and peace, was established to bucket along as a domestic alternative to Western payment systems like Visa and MasterCard. Since the invasion of Ukraine, sanctions have left Russians on thin financial services ice, and Mir is intended to give them a reliably accessible payment method— It's not much good for foreign travel unless you're traveling to Belarus, Cuba, or Venezuela, in which case you might be able to use your charger plate in Minsk or Havana or Caracas if you found something you wanted to buy. The message Dump Forums put on the NSPK site announces that Russia has left the ruble zone and has adopted cowrie shells as its currency provisionally until it can upgrade its currency with sea snails from the Arctic Ocean. The authors are satirists, of course. Russia's central bank isn't really going on the gastropod standard. Coming up after the break, Anna Bellic, director of the Office of Cybersecurity Strategy at Sysdig, shares a new threat framework for the cloud. Rick Howard previews his new online course on cybersecurity first principles. Stick around. Anna Bellick is director of the Office of Cybersecurity Strategy at Sysdig. In this sponsored Industry Voices segment, I speak with her about a new threat framework for the cloud. To be honest, I think
0: we find them all over the place. You know, some folks are just getting started, even though it feels like cloud's been around forever. Uh, Some folks were the pioneers, and so they are actually incredibly mature, and they're doing very, very complex things at massive scale in cloud. Uh, Our customers tend to veer more to the higher maturity side because uh, they've been adopting containers and DevOps and Kubernetes for, in some cases, almost a decade now. But we see all kinds of folks um, and the migration continues, uh, sort of probably will continue for the next, I don't know, decade or two.
1: And I know you and your colleagues there at Sysdig are advocating for a, a new mindset when it comes to cloud security. What exactly are you all pursuing here?
0: Yeah, so if we are into embracing the cloud way of operating in the cloud, which sounds obvious, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that organizations make when they move to cloud is they take their on-premise mindset and uh, habits and operating models with them. And then they try to operate that way in the cloud, which doesn't really work. And there's lots of reasons why it doesn't work, but one of them is actually that you're failing to take advantage of the programmability of the cloud infrastructure, right? So you're able to do everything as code, you're able to do a lot of on-demand scaling, for example, and you're able to create these environments that are basically built for purpose and then disappear very quickly when they're no longer needed. That's really powerful, but it creates some interesting problems for security. So one of the things that Sysdig is the most known for, perhaps, is threat detection in modern environments. So when you're talking about deploying uh, applications built in containers, for example, one issue is that those containers live for less than five minutes on average. So that workload can come and go, and you may have never seen it in any of your legacy tooling. So we're trying to provide tooling and then help people build process around tooling that is able to deal with those kinds of scenarios.
1: Well, you're promoting a new benchmark here. You call it the 555 benchmark. What exactly does that entail?
0: Yes, people love benchmarks, of course. Our threat research team is constantly watching uh, what we call the threat landscape. So they are seeing what the bad guys are doing in the cloud because that lets us create the best kind of content, uh, I mean, detection content, to protect our customers, right? And so what? one of the things that we reported in our most recent threat report is that the average length of a cloud attack is about 10 minutes. So that's 10 minutes from when an attacker finds your exposed um, environment, like from when an attacker finds you, uh, to when they're able to do damage to your systems. And that's incredibly short, right? Like uh, for reference, we know that Mandiant reports a dwell time of about sixteen days, uh, which means is how long the attacker is in your environment, typically on premise, until you discover them. And there are all kinds of other data points that are on the range of uh, minutes, hours, days, or sometimes weeks and months for how long attackers hang around. Uh, so in cloud, they don't hang around much. They come in, they do a bunch of things, and then they're out in 10 minutes having potentially stolen something or or taken something down or caused some other kinds
1: of damage. Well, let's unpack this 5.5.5. Five, five. What does that represent?
0: Yeah, so 5.5.5 five, five is inspired by um, the 10-minute time frame because what we're seeing basically is attackers are accelerating what they're doing in part because they leverage the benefits of cloud that I mentioned earlier. right? They use a ton of automation. They use scripting. They actually leverage the cloud services and abuse the cloud services. And they abuse things like CloudFormation or Terraform um, that we all use for building cloud infrastructure. So 555 um, basically says that if you are able to detect all of the necessary signals within five seconds if you're able to correlate them to each other so that you can triage what's really going on. Because one signal is usually not enough information. In security, you need a lot of context to know that something is really scary rather than just like some mundane admin activity. And then five minutes to begin incident response.
1: This sounds to me like uh, a high-velocity operation here. Are we talking about leaning on a good bit of automation?
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, Automation is going to play a key role. Uh, obviously, you can't automate everything. Our argument is that the cloud allows you to automate a lot, right? You have access to uh, a lot of API-based infrastructure now. Uh, you have access to a lot of modern tools that are built around sort of version-controlled systems and the DevOps workflows, and so you are able to actually, for example, describe your entire infrastructure, applications, workloads, everything, configuration around them in code, and then you can store that code in the repository, you can very quickly deploy that or redeploy that, should it come down, in case there's an incident. So on the one hand, things like um, downtime that were a huge concern when we were responding to incidents on-premise it can be less of a concern because it's much more straightforward to bring an environment back, and you're much more likely to actually get it back in the same state that it was originally running in. I will say that when we talk about incident response and automation of incident response, a lot of people recoil in horror because there's always the fear that you're going to like irreparably break something. And many elements of that process have to be manual, right? Like you have to go and call certain people into the room. You have to have these conversations because you have, you could have potentially huge business impacts with what you're doing. But the point is that if you automate away the simple stuff, the stuff that is, you know, definitely automatable, right? Like there's no reason why crypto miners should be running in AWS instances or any cloud instances, right? Because like, why? It's ridiculous. So if you automate away the simple stuff, then it gives you a lot more time and breathing room to deal with the more complex manual stuff that will always be there.
1: So for organizations that find themselves in regulatory regimes, and I'm thinking of, you know, particularly we've seen increased scrutiny from the SEC, for example, how does this align with those realities?
0: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's a very timely question, and it kind of uh, made our work on this framework all the more relevant sort of an accident. Uh, and yeah, so the SEC, has they've actually been speaking about this for a while, but they you know, published their disclosures about incident response, uh, that you have to disclose a material incident within four days. And we know that four days, in the grand scheme of how long it usually takes folks to identify that they've been breached, is just very short, right? Like I think the IBM uh, report numbers are on the order of 200 some days is how long it usually takes. So four days is very fast. Basically from where we set, I don't know how you can disclose a material breach within four days if you don't have an incident response team that is able to react uh, on the timescales that we're talking about. So again, 10 minutes sounds fast, but when you got to tell the SEC in four days, 10 minutes seems like it's not
1: that fast after all. That's Anna Bellick, Director of the Office of Cybersecurity Strategy at Sysdig. It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer, also our Chief Analyst. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So, you have been doing the CSO Perspectives podcast now for a little over three years, uh, and I was doing some quick back-of-the-envelope math. That's 14 seasons, 124 episodes. You're catching up on me, Rick, when it comes to uh <laughs> You to, are uh, so far ahead of me, Dave. Content. <laughs> but uh, you've been mostly concentrating on this notion of cybersecurity first principles, and I've been talking to you about that idea uh, before you joined the CyberWire. But for the uninitiated, what are we talking about here with first principles?
2: Well, I've been doing this cybersecurity thing for, you know, a long
1: time, some 30 years now.
2: And about five years ago, I started to get this nagging feeling at the back of my neck that maybe all the best practices that the InfoSec community has collected over the last, say, three decades, and even before that, like, you know, the CIA triad and malicious tool prevention, incident response, the NIST cybersecurity framework, and, you know, just compliance in general, haven't really slowed down cyber criminals, cyber spies, or cyber hacktivists at all. And I'm not saying that these best practices are not good things to do. I'm just saying that perhaps as a community, we haven't totally discovered the essence of the problem. With the CSO Perspectives podcast, I was able to spend some time unearthing the edges of what exactly that might be. So when you say essence of the problem, is that what a first principle is? Yeah, the the idea of first principles have been around since, you know, the beginning of scientific thought. I mean, all the way back to Aristotle and Descartes. They wrote about how in order to solve some mind-numbingly complex problems, you had to reduce it down to its atomic elements, something that everybody in the field could agree was the thing that we were all trying to solve and then work your way back from there. Modern-day big thinkers like, you know, Reed Hastings, who, as the Netflix CEO, revolutionized how we all consume movies, used first principle thinking to do it. And our hero, Elon Musk, as the CEO of SpaceX, he used first principle thinking to design reusable spacecraft.
1: All right. Well, you started thinking about that. What was the absolute uh, cybersecurity first principle?
2: Right, we explored these ideas on the CSO Perspectives podcast, and after about two years of that, I realized that we had enough material and solidified the idea enough that we published a book on the subject. And I should
1: say the book is called Cybersecurity First Principles, very original, Rick, a reboot (laughs) of strategy and tactics. (laughs) So let's get down to brass tacks here. I mean, what is the absolute cybersecurity first principle? Jeez, Dave,
2: go right for the spoiler, okay, jeez. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, in the book, I make the case that this is the atomic first principle that all of us should pursuing. Here it is. Reduce the probability of material impact due to a cyber event in the next, say, three to five years.
1: Okay. Well, the good news for us is that our colleagues over on the N2K training side of the business have just created a course that is dedicated to this very idea.
2: Yeah, that's right, and we're all very proud of it. It's an on-demand course featuring me, yours truly, as the instructor, and I make the case as to why I think that's the absolute first principle and then go over the follow-on strategies that you might pursue to achieve it. Things like zero trust, automation, resilience, intrusion, kill chain prevention, and risk forecasting. Well, where can we go get more
1: information about the course?
2: All right, so this is a kind of a crazy URL, but here it is, www.n2k.com. First hyphen principles hyphen preview. <laughs> so
1: that wraps up Or maybe the just country. go. Maybe just go to the website and search for it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be better. <laughs> All right. Well, I am looking forward to checking it out myself. Here, I, I know we've seen uh, lots of folks have had just excellent reviews of the books. You know, uh, people saying that you really crystallize their thoughts. That so, you know, after decades of being in the industry, this was. One of the first times that they've seen someone sort of uh, encapsulate what they were thinking. So, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, um,
2: I think I did, but you know, you never know how crazy I might be. So, uh, please read the book and let me know <laughs> what you think.
1: Well, I know how crazy you are, and I'm friends <laughs> with you anyway. So, <laughs> thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I encourage everyone to, uh, first of all, check out the book. It is a good read. Uh, but then also check out the course. Uh, you can do that over at n2k.com. Rick Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Fittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler